Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. May the angels of heaven be around us. May your light shine on us. May I just be a a vessel for your voice. Jesus, you said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And may I just be a channel for your voice. Help us to understand righteousness by faith and use uh, these recordings to speak to people all over the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. And when Ellen White went into vision, she would say, glory, 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 glory. Uh, Revelation 14 Verse 9, the Bible says that the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, the third angel is glory. This message is powerful. Uh, It warns, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, I'll talk about that tomorrow, some of the details of the warning of the third angel. But the third angel is a powerful message. It is God's message in his word. And that message finishes with verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's a verse that we know well. This is our verse as a people. It's a verse for Seventh-day Adventists, and it's a verse for the world. Now, let me share a couple of sentences from my book, God's Last Message, Christ Our Righteousness. If you have this book, grab this book and look at page 118. 118. For the recording, uh, this book is available from Whitehorse Media. It's probably available in an ABC near you, (laughs) whoever's listening to this sometime in the future, it is in the ABCs, and if they don't have it, uh, you can get it from Whitehorse Media. Page 118. Down near the bottom of this page, there is a quote from the 1888 materials, page 783. And this is what it says. The law, do you see that quote? Ellen White wrote, The law without faith in the gospel of Christ cannot save the transgressor. Uh, Yesterday, I talked about how the third angel's message has elements that are blended There's the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, both. And how down throughout history, there's been extremes where the pendulum has been going back and forth and people focus on the commandments, but they leave out Jesus. And then other people focus on Jesus, but leave out the commandments. This has happened in Christian history. This has happened in Adventist history. Uh, At Minneapolis, the pendulum centered And the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus were combined through the preaching of E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones. Ellen White heard that preaching and said, every fiber in her heart went, amen, said amen. And here's a, a quote that goes right along with this. The law without faith in the gospel of Christ cannot save the transgressor. So if we preach the law, but we don't lift up Jesus... We're really not helping people because they, they can't be saved. We're, we're not saving anybody or we're not leading anybody to salvation. And then she says that the gospel without the law is two things. It's inefficient and it is, what's that second word? Powerless. Isn't that amazing? If, you, if we try to preach the gospel, but there's no law 
in our preaching. Our preaching is inefficient, and it is powerless. There's no power in that kind of preaching. That's an amazing quote. And then she says, it is the two blended. The gospel of Christ and the law of God that produce the love and the faith unfeigned. So if we want that love that Jesus talks about that is going to be growing cold in the world, if we want that love that uh, is in the gospel that's going to be preached to all the world as a witness to all nations before the end comes, if we want the third angel's message, we have to have the law and the gospel together. Now, go down just a couple sentences in your, in your book here, and there's a quote that says exactly that. Right in the middle of the last paragraph is a one sentence from Gospel Workers, page 161. If we would have the spirit and the power of the third angel's message... We must present the law and the gospel together, for they go hand in hand. Isn't that powerful? How many hands do you have? Two, right? How many eyes do you have? Two. Uh, if we, in order for us to see clearly, we need both of our eyes. When we're rowing, you know, if you get into a boat and if you row a boat, if you want the boat to go straight, a little rowboat, you have to use both your hands, pulling both of the oars. To walk, I need both of my feet, <laughs> right? This is very simple. And according to the spirit of prophecy... We need to preach the law and the gospel together. And if we do that, we can have the spirit and the power of the third angel's message. There is a power in the third angel. And the more we get into that and get deeper and deeper and deeper, we're going we're gonna to sense that power. It's tremendous power. And that power comes in preaching and presenting the law and the gospel together. And that's what the third angel's message does. The third angel is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, right? Together. We cannot understand righteousness by faith unless we put the two together. They have to go together. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, this morning, and we're going to do it right from our Bibles. So let's turn in the Bible to the book of Romans. And we're going to have a little Bible study. We're going to walk through some verses in the book of Romans. We obviously can't read the whole book. Chapter 3, we're going to go into chapter 3, and I'm going to walk you through righteousness by faith. I believe personally that the Holy Spirit taught me what I'm going to share with you, and that he taught me uh, through reading E.J. Wagner's articles that were in the Signs of the Times a long time ago on Romans and Galatians. And I also learned it from Steps to Christ, through reading the little book Steps to Christ, that jewel of a book, that gold mine of a book. And ultimately, Wagner's articles and Steps to Christ, God used those writings to help me to understand righteousness by faith from the Bible. Those writings pointed me to the Bible, and I learned this in the Word of God, and it became clearer and clearer and clearer to me what's in the Bible. And as I've mentioned this yesterday, when we ultimately get down to the final times when the 
Holy Spirit is poured out and the loud cry is given and the third angel's message circles the world with a loud voice. And the fourth angel comes down in Revelation 18.1 to give power to the third angel during the final crisis. And the whole earth is lightened with his glory. We're going to be giving this message from the word of God. We're going to be seeing it, and people are going to be seeing it. People all around the world are going to be seeing it right here. So let's just, uh, let's just have a little Bible study. Romans chapter 3, verse, well, actually chapter 1, just a quick summary. Paul talks about different things, but then he talks about the Gentile world and how it's full of sin. Romans chapter 1 ends with a list of all the different sins of the people of the world. And then in Romans 2, he zeroes in on the Jews. And he talks about how the Jews are really no better because they know what's right, but they're not doing it. And they're in the same boat. The Gentile world and the Jewish world, and we could add the Adventist world, you know, we're all in the same boat. And then in chapter 3, he puts them both together and he says, everybody's in the same boat. Uh, verse 9, Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? And he said, no, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Pretty clear? So we're all in the same condition, and sin is breaking God's law. Truth is very, is very tight. Uh, Ellen White talks about Satan weaving a web of lies, and you know, spider webs have all kinds of different, different uh, strands and truth has, I mean, uh, error has lots of different strands. I heard Elder Frizee a long time ago, he, he said, imagine I had a, a blackboard or a whiteboard up here, and I took a, uh, either a marker or a, um, you know, and I, I started writing on the board with chalk or whatever I was using, and he said, uh, let's say I put three numbers up there, 59, 82, 75, and I wrote them on the board. And then if I asked you, uh, if you add up those numbers, how many wrong answers could you get if you, if you added them wrong? He said, could there be, you know, if you added them wrong, could you get 10 wrong answers? Could you get 50 wrong answers? Could you get 100 wrong answers? Could you get 1,000 wrong answers? And his point was that that error has an endless amount of wrong answers. And then he said, but if you add them up right, how many right answers do you get? Now, does that sound narrow-minded? <laughs> Is that politically incorrect to say there's only one right answer? But when you're dealing with math, and if you add these three numbers together, there's only one right answer, right? I mean, that's not being narrow-minded and and, uh, you know, foolish. It's the truth. It is the truth. There's only one right answer. And, and then he said, when it comes to truth, you know, truth has, has one right answer. Truth is a, is a package that's tight. It fits together. And when you inject error into the system of truth, it just, it unbalances everything. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to understand the simple truths of his word. And truth is tight. It fits together perfectly. And Paul here says in verse 9, uh, Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, which means that everyone has broken the law of God. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And there, and there the word righteous is used. And we talked about this yesterday, that according to Romans and Isaiah and Steps to Christ and, and numerous other uh, scriptures in the Bible, 
righteousness is defined by the Ten Commandments. God's law is, is righteous because it's right. The word righteous and righteousness, you know, righteousness by faith, righteous is rooted in the word right and not wrong. And right is defined by the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tell us what's right. And the Ten Commandments are right because God is right, because his character is right. The Ten Commandments are a reflection of the character of God. And that character was revealed by Jesus when he came. The Ten Commandments are the law of God written, and Jesus is the law of God lived. Jesus lived the law. If we want to know what the law looks like, what it looks like to be a a commandment keeper, we just look at Jesus. He is the embodiment. He said, uh, He said, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I have come to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. So based on the Bible, there is none righteous, no, not one, which means we've all done wrong. We've all broken the Ten Commandments. We've all, and that's what it means to be a sinner. When uh, when the Bible says uh, that people are sinners, And Paul says here, everyone is under sin. Sin is breaking the law. Sin is going against what is right, what is righteous, righteousness. We've all broken the law. We've sinned, and that's why we're sinners. Make sense? We're all sinners because we've all broken the Ten Commandments. It's really pretty simple. It's not uh, flattering, (laughs) but it's simple. Now, then Paul continues on and talks about the condition of man and women in verses 11 to 18. We don't have to read the whole thing. But now notice verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Now, Wagner was very clear that to be under the law means two things. It means to be under under the law's authority, that the law applies to all of us, And it also means to be under its condemnation as a lawbreaker. That's what it means to be under the law. Wagner said, when you're under the law, the law is on top of you. We're under it because we've broken it. Imagine a heavy, you know, a heavy stone that we're under. First, we're under its authority. The law applies to everybody. And then when we break it, we're under its condemnation. He's very clear on that. And he he got that from the Bible. Let's look at verse 19 again. Keep looking at it. We know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Now, how many people are under the law? He goes on and says that every mouth may be what? Stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. There's a a horn in prophecy that has a big mouth. A little horn that has a mouth speaking great things. And we often talk about that little horn in our Revelation seminars, right? But the horn is not the only one that has a big mouth. I I learned that. The Lord... uh, spoke to me that if I have a a mouth speaking great things, I'm just like the little horn. I have a whole sermon called The Beast Within. I'm not going to share it now, but the idea is that when you look at the beasts of Revelation and look at the horn and look at their character qualities and look in the mirror, it's it's a reflection of humanity. The beasts whether it's the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, these are reflections of humanity. And we're humans, and we're all in this together. Every mouth may be stopped. You know, may the Holy Spirit just convict us. You know, sometimes we talk too much. (laughs) And, And, you know, now I'm doing talking, I'm in front of you, and I want to be very careful that my words are the right words. 
We, we, you know, human beings, we just talk too much. That's why God gave us two ears and only one mouth, is he wants us to listen twice as much as we speak. And he especially wants us to listen to his word. And if we're going to understand righteousness by faith, we have to be quiet for a while. We have to close our mouths and stop talking and stop uh, saying things that we probably really don't know what we're talking about. Saying things that we know this or we know that when we really don't. And there's so many theories and views and ideas. And, and uh, God has just, you know, spoken to my heart. There, were, there have been many, many times when I've read this verse and I've just realized I just need to shut up and I just need to listen to what the Lord has to say. And the whole context here is that we're under sin, we're not righteous, which means we've broken the law of God. We've broken the holy law of God, which is the foundation of his government in heaven and on earth. The holy law of God, which is inside the ark, inside the most holy place that has two angels on the sides where the glorious light shines out from the middle, the Shekinah, the Ten Commandments, is a reflection of the righteousness of God. It is a holy law of God. And uh, Satan's whole contention in heaven and down throughout history is that the law of God is really bad, is that he has a better way, that going his way is, is, is better than the law of God. And this whole experiment down here is designed by God to prove him wrong. That it's a disaster when we go our own way. That sin is a disaster. And that God's law, his righteous law, is right. And it's what's best for his universe, for, for all created beings. It's best for you, it's best for me, it's best for everyone to line up with the law of God. That's what's right. When we do that, we're, 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 we're happy. And that's the issue. Is that really right? Satan says, that's not right. That's not true. Following God's law is bondage. It's bad. It's not good for you. It's not good for the angels. And Lucifer convinced a third of the angels that he was right. Th- you know, can you imagine that? A third of the holy beings were convinced that there's something wrong with God and with his law. And these intelligent beings, they bought into it. Don't buy into that lie. It's a lie. It's a lie from the devil. God's law is right. It's good. It's for the benefit of the whole universe. And when we keep it, we'll be happy. We'll be at peace. We'll have joy. But we've all broken it. That's why there's none righteous, no, not one. And every mouth needs to be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. So here, so here Paul's talking about the whole world. And a lot of evangelicals say that the law was just for the Jews. But that's not true. And they, they often quote Paul. But here's, this is a great text to use in your Bible studies with people in the world, show them Romans 3.19, that the law of God is for the world. It's for the Gentiles in Romans 1. It's for the Jews in Romans 2. It's for the Christians. It's for Adventists. It's for everybody. And Paul is proving that right here in your Bible, in Romans 3.19, that the law is for the whole world, and that in the light of the law, every mouth 
And that applies to Pope Francis's mouth and Trump's mouth and Hillary Clinton's mouth and my mouth and your mouth, everybody's mouth. Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And that tells us that in the light of the holy law of God, we are all guilty. Guilty. Guilty means we are, we're accountable to God and that we are guilty of violating his law. That's what Paul says, right? It's right there. And this is the context of righteousness by faith. Remember, uh, Ellen White said, if we really want to understand and have the power of the third angel, we have to have the law and the gospel together. And that's exactly what Paul does in Romans 3. Exactly. Romans 1 is the Gentiles are in sin. Romans 2, the Jews are in sin. Romans 3, everybody's in sin. In the light of the holy law of God which is a reflection of his character, of his nature, of his love, of his unselfish goodness, and we've all broken it. And we're all, by nature, uh, in trouble. And we are guilty, guilty before him. Now, that doesn't mean that God is bad. You know, Satan wants to spin this and make us think God is bad. That's not true. It's not God that's bad. Who's the bad one? It's us, right? That's the whole purpose of the judgment and the hour of judgment. And at the end of the millennium, uh, there's a great white throne and all the vast multitudes are resurrected and they stand before a great white throne and the books are opened And then they see their whole lives flash before them. And and one of the purposes of the final judgment is to convince all of humanity that it's not God that's bad. It's them. See? And God will be completely exonerated. When the whole great controversy is over and all the dust settles and everything everything is out in the open, God will appear as absolutely, completely, and totally innocent, as flawless, as unselfish, as pure. That's why he sits on a white throne. That's why Jesus comes on a white cloud. That's why he wants to, he offers us a white robe. (laughs) That's why we like the name White Horse Media from Jesus coming on a white horse in Revelation 19. God is, is, is pure. There's nothing wrong with him. And all, you know, and, and if, if we start, if we start you know, thinking in our minds in ways that makes God out to be wrong in any area, then without realizing it, we're thinking like the devil. We're thinking like the devil. That's the way the devil thinks. There's something wrong with God. And this whole great controversy is to show that that's all not true. That God is right. And righteousness is revealed in his law. And we've all broken it. And we're wrong. And we need to go. We need to stop talking and humble ourselves before him and realize these facts. We are guilty before God. Verse 20. Therefore. And and, and what I'm sharing with you right now, I learned this from Wagner. So powerful, some of his early writings. Therefore, in the light of verse 19, in the light of our condition, therefore, by the deeds 
of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's a very powerful verse. Paul is saying that in the light of our, our condition before God as commandment breakers, as lawbreakers, as under the law, as guilty before God, therefore, in that condition that we're in, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified. Which means, once we're commandment breakers, all the deeds of trying to keep the law to try to change our condition before God is worthless. It's worthless. If you try to change your status before God by keeping the commandments, when you're guilty before God, you're like a hamster going around and around and around and around in a cage. And you'll never get there. All you'll do is is, uh, deepen your guilt. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no happiness. There's no way out. There's no way out from getting out from underneath this condition by the deeds of the law. As, as good as the law is, commandment keeping cannot save your soul. Right? Once you're guilty, no amount of effort, even cooperative effort, no amount of effort, even cooperative effort, can remove your guilt. When you're guilty, you're guilty. It's kind of like a person, you know, if a person commits a crime and gets thrown in jail, and he's in jail in his cell for six months, and then he comes before the judge, and the judge says, did you do it? And he says, yes, your honor, I did it. And the judge says, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And the, and the man says, well, but your honor, I've been sitting in my, my cell for the last six months, and I haven't done anything bad for six months. I've cleaned my cell, I've helped out in the cafeteria, I've, you know, I've washed the dishes. I've been a model prisoner for six months. Your Honor, isn't six months worth of obedience? Won't that remove my guilt? And what's the judge going to say? No. You know, he, he might say, I'm glad you, you've... Uh, Mop the floor for six months. You've been good. You haven't hurt any prisoners. You've, uh, you've cleaned up, the, you've done the dishes. You've been a good, obedient, law-abiding prisoner for the last six months. But six months ago, you committed a crime. And you are, you are guilty for that crime. And no amount of obedience is going to remove a particle of your guilt, not one particle. You see our condition? Once we've broken the Ten Commandments and are guilty before God and our mouths are stopped, not not an iota of obedience can remove your guilt. That's why we cannot be saved by the law of God. That's why we cannot be justified by the law. It's it's impossible to be justified. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. To be justified in the sight of God means to stand before God just. To stand before God as if we never sinned. To stand before God without any guilt. So we can stand there before the holy law of God, perfectly innocent. And that state is impossible for a lawbreaker to achieve by his own works. 
See, the, the law and the gospel, it's a tight package. The law and the gospel have to go together. If we don't understand the law, we'll never understand the gospel. If we preach the law without the gospel, all we do is discourage people. But if we preach the gospel without the law, it's inefficient and powerless. Because people don't understand that they're sinners. They don't understand why they need a savior. It makes no sense. The whole thing makes no sense. But once you understand the law and our condition, then and only then can we understand the gospel. It all, it all fits together. It all makes sense. So we're not justified by the law in the sight of God. It's impossible. For by the law... Now, some people say, well, since I'm saved by grace, not the gospel, we don't need the law. That's what the evangelicals say. That's totally wrong. Uh, the, the early Adventists preached the law, the law, the law, until they were as dry as the, gil, the hills of Gilboa, and they, and they had lost sight of the gospel. That was a terrible thing. Because if you, if you preach the law and tell people they're going to be saved by commandment keeping, you've doomed them. We've got to bring them together. They have to come together. And so we know that the law is there. It doesn't save us. It can't save us. So what good is it? Verse 20 says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law, the law, even though it doesn't save us, it shows us our condition in the sight of God. Does that make sense? And this is what the Bible says. This is what Wagner preached at Minneapolis. He, he walked the brethren through verse by verse by verse by verse, right from the Bible. The law shows us our sin. And if we don't know that we're sinners, it's because we, don't, we haven't really taken a close look at the law. We need to take a closer look at the law by the Holy Spirit so we know our condition as sinners. Now, let's keep going, because by now we're ready for some good news. Verse 21, Paul says, But now, but now the righteousness of God so righteousness is the law of God revealed in the life of Jesus, but we don't have that righteousness. So where do we get it? We've got to get it. We need righteousness, but we can't get it from the law. So where do we get it? Paul's answer is we can get it in only one place, and that one place is Jesus, he is the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Now without the law, it means it, we, it's, it's in another place. It's not, it's not, we can get the law, I mean we can get the righteousness of God without the law which means somewhere else, in another place. And it is manifested. And one day it's going to be manifested to the whole world. The whole world's going to see it. But it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. So it's apart from the law, but the law witnesses to it. And Wagner was so clear on this. He said the, right, he said the righteousness of, of, of God is in Jesus. It's separate from the law. But the law witnesses to it. The law looks at Jesus and says, that's it. That is the righteousness that I require. The good law of God looks at you and me and says, you don't have it. The good law of God looks at Jesus and says, there it is. There's the righteousness that I'm looking for. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God. So whose righteousness do we need? We need God's righteousness, not our own. 
which is by faith of Jesus Christ to all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We're all in the same boat. We're all commandment breakers. And our only option when obedience is eliminated as a path to forgiveness, the only option left is faith. It's trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's doing. He's building his case. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the context of the laws and our law breaking and the condition that we're in, what Paul does, what Paul does is he, he lifts up the cross. He lifts up grace. See, when you realize your condition and your mouth is stopped, then you look at the cross and you see there it is. There's grace. Grace becomes powerful in the context of the law. If we preach grace without the law, people don't know what that means. It's like a person, you know, who, who kneels before a king and asks for mercy. And then when the king puts his scepter out, like who was it, uh, King uh, Ahasuerus said to Esther, she said, if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. I'm going before the king. And then he extended the scepter, the scepter of grace. And that's what Jesus does. We have a king who sits on a throne. And before a great white throne, our king is willing to extend to us the scepter and to say, even though you've sinned, even though you've broken my commandments, even though you've done what's wrong, I'm going to show you grace because I came down, I took your place, I lived that life, I developed a righteous character, and then I paid the price in Gethsemane and on the cross for all of your sins. And because of what I did, not because of what you did, but because of what I did, I'm going to extend to you the scepter of mercy, and I'm going to give you grace, and I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm going to give you my righteousness as a gift, and then I'm going to raise you up so you can stand before my holy law and before the entire universe. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. As if you never sinned even one time. You cannot accomplish that on your own. But Jesus offers to do it for you as a gift. That's what it means to be justified before God. It means to stand before God as if you've never sinned even one time. Yeah, I see people's, you know, I see the heads nodding. I see the smiles coming. I tell you, this is, this is powerful, powerful information. Verse 25, God whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. That's a fancy word or a big word, propitiation for uh, the mercy seat. The propitiation is the mercy seat over the law. And in the Day of Atonement, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat over the Ten Commandments. Jesus is our mercy seat through faith in his blood. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest took the blood and put it on top of the mercy seat, underneath which was the Ten Commandments. Our hope is the blood of Jesus Christ. Satan hates the blood. He hates the blood. The blood is, a, is a, a representative or a representation of the life of Christ poured out for us. The blood is, a, is 
his mercy. It's a symbol of his, of his merits, of his righteousness, of his worthiness, who he is. His blood is enough for you and me. His blood is enough. And we need to have faith in his blood. We need to trust that in, in our state, with our hands over our mouths, as sinners, we look to Jesus, we see him hanging on the cross, we see his blood poured out drop by drop, and we realize it's enough. It's enough. He's enough. His worthiness is enough. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Hallelujah. His blood is enough. And if we're willing to humble our hearts and to trust in Jesus Christ and in his, in his blood, faith in his blood, in his righteousness, that he's enough, he's the one, he's the center, someday every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at the end of the millennium, all the lost will realize they're lost because they rejected Jesus Christ and they've broken his law and they have no atonement. They have no savior. They have no blood. It's too late. And they're standing guilty before God and they have no hope because there's no more of an offer for forgiveness. But that's available to us now. It's still there to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Ellen White said, Oh, glorious truth, just to his own law, and yet the justifier of of the person who believes in Jesus. In the context of Romans 3, to be justified means to stand before God without guilt. Because remember, we're guilty before God, but he'll remove that guilt. He'll take away that guilt. He'll forgive our sins so we can stand before him without guilt and we can be just just before God as if we never sinned. That is justification by faith. That is righteousness given to us by faith through trusting Jesus instead of trusting in ourselves. Now, I can see my time is, is going fast. Uh, I've got to share some more things with you before I'm done. Roman, uh, verse 28 Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Commandment keeping won't save us. We can't earn our way to heaven. Commandment keeping won't remove our guilt. Commandment keeping won't take guilt off of, of our consciences. It won't, we can't stand before God without guilt through the law. Paul said, if righteousness came through the law, Christ has died for nothing. Righteousness cannot come through the law. It can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's tight. It's a tight package. You have to stick with, with Romans 3, and you have to stick with, with biblical definitions. If you stick with biblical definitions, it all makes, it all makes sense. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God means I can stand before him, no guilt, no sin. I can open my mouth again, <laughs> and I can say, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. I can open my mouth again, and I can say, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you did for me in your life and in your death on the cross. You're my Savior. Hallelujah. Now, keep going. Notice verse, uh, verse 5. Hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. 
Paul is saying that when we trust in Jesus as our Savior and look to him alone as our righteousness and his blood and the power of the cross, then in the context of God saying, you can talk again, (laughs) you can stand up now, you can thank me for what I've done for you, then what happens is in the context, in the, in the womb of grace, lives are changed. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the channel of justification by faith. The Holy Spirit comes down and then comes in. And, and, and he brings love into our hearts. The love that we don't get, you know, the coldness out in the environment, you know, when things get colder and colder and colder, we can find love and joy and peace from the Holy Spirit coming to us and showing us that God still loves us anyway. Even though we've sinned, even though we've broken his law, even though we've done everything wrong, he still loves us. He still paid the price for us. He still lived a perfect life for us. And he extends to us the scepter of grace and says, now you can stand before me. You can get up. You can stand before the whole universe, before all the angels, before unfallen worlds. And I can, God can present you clothed in the righteousness of Christ as if you never sinned. And you can be happy and you can live forever and you can meet the angels and you can meet the prophets. It's all through grace and forgiveness and mercy because the king has been willing to do this for you and me. And that brings love. And that's what the, that's what the Bible says. Hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. Now, look at chapter 8, verse 4. Romans, and you can read all this in Steps to Christ. Read the little book, Steps to Christ, it's all there. Romans 8, verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law, there's the righteousness of the law, might be fulfilled. Now, it was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it, but now it can also be fulfilled in us. It says, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So righteousness by faith, righteousness covers us, and we stand before God as if we never sinned, and then righteousness comes into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, And then as we stand up, then we can become commandment keepers because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, and ultimately the law is fulfilled. Romans 13.10 says the law is fulfilled in one word, which is love. Loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So uh, commandment keeping results when we're justified by faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness into our lives and the Holy Spirit comes in and changes us. And then there, that's where the cooperation comes in now. Now we cooperate with God to become commandment keepers. And we can do that because we're not a hamster going around and around and around in a, in a little circle, but now we're forgiven we're, we're changed. We are justified Christians in the sight of God who have been given mercy by the king, and now we can stand up and we can begin a life of obedience. So that's where the message of the righteousness of Christ covering us and then through the Holy Spirit coming into us can actually produce a people who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The the third angel's message, people, can be developed through the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that the third angel's message, people, can be developed. There's only one way. 
and that is through the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. There is no other way. There's only one way, and it's the Bible way. It's the gospel way through Jesus. Now, before I close, I want to I walk you through Steps to Christ. Open your, grab your book here, and I'm going to summarize all this. Actually, I'm not going to summarize it. I'm going to let the Lord summarize it. Page 92. No, I'm sorry, not page 92. Page 110. Brother Royce, I'm, I'm going to go a few more minutes. Is that okay? <laughs> I know I'm a little bit, uh, I'm right on my time here, but my wife always tells me, Steve, you've got to shorten your talks. My kids tell me that too. <laughs> Sometimes they t- my, my son times me <laughs> when, he, when he hears me preach in Newport. He, he tells me how many minutes I, I preached. Page 110. Okay, page 110 at the bottom is a summary and going on to the next page from Steps to Christ. And Jones really made use of Steps to Christ at the General Conference session in 1893. He really zeroed in on this. You got it? See where it is? Bottom of the page? Okay, this is from Steps to Christ. She says, Righteousness is defined by the standard of God's holy law as expressed in the ten precepts given on Mount Sinai, which we've talked about. It was possible for Adam before the fall to form a righteous character by obedience to God's law. See, if God's law is righteousness, obeying that law would help you to form a righteous character. And it was possible for Adam to do that before he sinned. But he failed to do this. And because of his sin, our natures are fallen and we cannot make ourselves righteous. We can't do it. We can't keep God's law in our own uh, strength. Since we are sinful and unholy, we cannot perfectly obey the holy law. We have how much righteousness? No righteousness of our own with which to meet the claims of the law of God. That's our condition. And we saw that in Romans 3. We saw that in Romans 3.19. The whole world is guilty before God. All our mouths are stopped. We have no righteousness to meet the claims of the law of God. But Christ has made a way of escape for us. Hallelujah. Jesus is our answer. He lived on earth amid trials and temptations such as we have to meet. He lived a sinless life. Jesus kept the law perfectly for us. And then he died for us. That's the gospel. He died for us. And now he offers to take our sins and give us his righteousness. He says, let's make a switch. Jesus says, I've got righteousness, you've got sin. Want to trade? Sound like a good deal? This is exciting. And then here's the condition. If you give yourself to him, there's the condition. You have to surrender your life to him. If you don't surrender your life to him, then someday you're going to stand before God, before a great white throne, and you're going to be accountable for all your sins on your own. And you'll die. You'll go down, and you'll never come back. If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then... Sinful as your life may have been, no matter what you've done, no matter how you know, bad you've been, no matter how many sins, how many dark stains on your life that are in your past, no matter what you've done, for his sake, you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in the place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. That is justification by faith. 
That's the imputed righteousness of Christ as a free gift credited to you so you can stand before God as if you never sinned. Isn't that good? Isn't that simple? Can you understand that? Can we understand that? I, I can get a hold of this. Now then she says, more than this, Christ changes the heart. That's Romans 5.5. 5. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And you are to maintain this connection with Christ by faith and the continual surrender of your will to him. As long as you do this, he will work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So you may say, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said to his disciples, it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now go down to the next paragraph, the last sentence there. In the next paragraph, the la or actually we'll just read the whole paragraph. It says, then with Christ working in you, you will manifest the same spirit and do the same good works, works of righteousness and obedience. So that's where righteousness, we're not only covered, but we're filled. And that's where we then become obedient because we're, we stand up and we're not guilty anymore. Our, our sins are forgiven. Jesus stands in our place. The Holy Spirit comes in and then we begin to live the life of obedience. So we have nothing of ourselves of which to boast. Our only ground of hope is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and in that wrought by his spirit working in and through us. So there it is. After you read those paragraphs and, you know, read them again and read them again and, and kind of meditate on them, by the time you're done meditating on those paragraphs, which are simply a description of what we read in Romans, Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, it's all right here. The more we meditate that and think about that, then we understand righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith is trusting Jesus to cover us in his righteousness so we can stand before God as if we never sinned. And righteousness by faith also involves Jesus through the Holy Spirit coming into us and then helping us to begin to live the new life of obedience to God because we love him, because we now love the Lord, we love our King, <laughs> who gave us mercy and we experience his grace and his power. And it's all by faith and it's all through Jesus Christ. And it is the message that will lighten the earth with its glory. And what we'll do tomorrow is we'll look at this all in the context of, um, of the final crisis and the mark of the beast, and the enforcement of Sunday uh, in the final days, and how the message of Christ our righteousness will belt the world at a time when the whole world is basically violating God's law. You know, I've got one more quote, and then we'll finish with this. Page 92. Bottom of page 92, this is a quote from, let's see, my reference there is page 50. This is from the 1888 materials, page 217. Bottom of 92. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus, it is talked about but not understood. Somebody asked me this yesterday. What is the faith of Jesus? What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Ever wondered that? The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What is the faith of Jesus? Here she says it. She tells us, Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. 
He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and he took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. Jesus had faith that his father was going to bring him through. And we can have faith in him that he will justify us, that he'll cleanse us, that he'll forgive us, that he'll change us, and he'll bring us through all the way so that we can stand before him someday as a king on the throne who has nail scars in his hands and in his feet because of his love for you and for me. Let's, uh, let's kneel together and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his, into his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, I'm just a, I'm such a, a weak human being. I hope that I've uh, shared this in the way that pleases you this morning. Lord, help people to look beyond my faults and to look to you. You are our righteousness. You are our Savior. We need to trust you and have faith in your blood. And Lord, we know that by trusting you, we can stand before you as if we never sinned. Hallelujah. And Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. May your love be poured out into our hearts. We need that love. This world is cold. This world is dying. And we need the love that's in your heart for human beings. And may that love be within us and enable us to then become commandment keepers, which is fulfilled in love. Love for you and love for our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, prepare us for the future. Prepare us for the final crisis. Prepare us to stand before you when you come again. Thank you for the message of righteousness by faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.